Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. As the Wu-Tang Clan once put it, cash moves everything around me. Get the money. Dollar dollar bill, y'all. I grew up not wanting to believe this. All the stuff that seemed worth having was hard to put a price tag on. But in a global capitalist world, there's a lot of hard, sad truth to it. As an American child of the 1980s, I absorbed the message, find yourself, follow your passions. But there are powerful economic forces at work, shaping our lives and opportunities. My guests today experienced this in the most intense way imaginable, wrangling with the European Union over the economy of his country, Greece, in the aftermath of the 2008 financial meltdown. He saw firsthand what a house of cards global capitalism can be and what can happen to the ones on the bottom. Yanis Varoufakis is Greece's former finance minister and the author of two wonderful recent books, Adults in the Room and Talking to My Daughter About the Economy. Welcome to Think Again, Yanis. It's very good to be here. When I first saw your book, Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, and I've dived into both. I've fully read Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, and I've read, I've read a good portion of Adults in the Room. I was very pleased to see such a book because I feel like you, know, you're, you have this premise that the economy is too important to leave to the experts. And yet people who don't feel like experts in economics often feel that they have no place at the table, no place in the conversation. It's all about democracy. If the demos is going to be allowed back into democracy, if the people are allowed to be in control of their affairs, of their lives right. through the democratic process, you cannot say to them, leave the economy to the experts, because the economy under capitalism is everything. It, it has, maybe you and I would have loved to live in a world where the economy uh, makes no sense. Like once upon a time, it didn't make any sense. <laughs> it was all about society, history, power, kings and ideology and religion and all that. But today the economy perforates and you know, infects every pore of our bodies and minds. So effectively, when you say leave the, the economics to the economists, to the experts, like saying, let's do away with democracy, which actually we have done away, haven't, haven't we? Now we have an oligarchy that presents itself as a democracy. It is incredibly complex, at least the way global capitalism operates at the moment. It, but it isn't. Well, simplify no, it for us, yes. No, you see, economists do not understand the economy any more than you do because it, it is crucial to separate two things in our own minds, whether you're an economist or not. Right. The economy from economists' theories about the economy, not the same thing. Right. Economists <laughs> are very good at understanding their models. Right. But their models have nothing to do with really existing capitalism at all. Unlike in physics, where physics, through the process of experimentation and the rejection of theories that fail in the, in the, in the lab, they get closer and closer to the truth about how nature works. Right. In economics, we don't have anything like a lab. <laughs> right. And therefore, it's a little bit like philosophy. Uh, there's no philosophy that has ever gone away. Sure. Uh, you, know, the, the Hegel, you will always find a Hegelian somewhere. You will always find a Kantian somewhere. 
Right. Uh, it's a bit like religions too. There, they, they, you know, there there are periods of growth of a particular religion and shrinking, but they will never go away because there is no way of proving any religion wrong. Same thing applies in economics. They only understand one thing: hmm. monopoly. The immense power monopoly gives you. If you're a monopolist, if you know, if you have Google and you're monopolizing the advertising industry, you're monopolizing sure. search. Huh? Then you have a lot of power and a lot of wealth. They understand that. So what they are very good at doing, surreptitiously, not so much because there is a conspiracy or they're doing it on purpose, but this is an evolutionary process that leads them to this. The ones who do th- what I'm just going to say are the ones that become the good economists, the experts, the ones that get the ones who are good at Columbia at University creating monopolies. Yeah. Or, yeah, of course. Yeah. So the way they create a monopoly is to take something that everybody should be able to understand and express it in a language that no one can penetrate. Right. The language of economics as it is spoken in the news as we hear it, you know, even words like austerity, ideas like economic crises and bubbles and so on. I mean, these they're, they're not, I don't think they are the most complex concepts in the world, but you do have to speak the language to know what they're talking about. You know, to have a place in the conversation unless you are going to be standing on the sidelines waving something. That's correct. But look, as citizens, we have an obligation to ourselves and to democracy to become schooled in the basics of economics. Sure. Now, that doesn't mean going and enrolling to do a bachelor's in economics, but it means that you have to be an active citizen in the same way that you have to understand the workings of your constitution. You have to invest into into community activities in order to learn how to be a human being and to collaborate with other human beings instead of being at home and watching television or being (laughs) on the internet. Uh, Similarly, we have to come to terms with the basic facts and mechanisms of economic life. Otherwise, we are not participating in democracy. And we can't complain about the fact that our democracies have been depleted. I mean, I think what happens is that, especially in countries like America, where things are going pretty well for a long time, people get very comfortable and they don't bother to learn. Like when it comes to your backyard and you find yourself suddenly, or your whole town or your community without a job or in threat of never having a job again or whatever, people suddenly start becoming very, you know, average citizens become much more motivated to learn the things that maybe we all ought to know. I think it's worse than that. Firstly, I don't believe that things have been going well in the United States. Uh, There are large chunks of the United States uh, that are suffering immensely. What I mean to say is that Relative to other countries, um, sure. America has been you don't have gone through a long period of prosperity. At least you haven't had one for a while. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's that's all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, sure. Oh, no, I understand what you say, but there, it works. It cuts both ways. You can have a period of uh, you know, the grapes of wrath, uh, during which people um, internalize the crisis. They stay at home. They become depressed. They right. hate the antidepressants. And it's not necessarily the case that the crisis is going to generate an interest in democratic politics and mm, how the world mm, works mm. in an outward kind of attitude of people. Right. So we can never take for granted anything. Your daughter, to whom you wrote the book, she, is, she was 14 at the time or something? She was 12 at the time 12 when I started at, writing it. 12 at the time. And what was the most important thing? First of all, I love the book and I love... You know, there's there's some very wonderful, funny, warm writing about how your fears that she's going to see this as just dad lecturing at her about something she doesn't want to know. But, but what was the most important thing for you to convey to her that she should understand about the economy? 
you know. Citizenship. Okay. And not allowing herself to become a plaything of forces that she doesn't understand and therefore which once you don't understand them, uh, they're beyond your control. Autonomy, being the owner, the genuine owner of yourself and your thinking. Uh, I grew up in a military dictatorship where thinking was prohibited unless it was within the confines of the censor. And when the dictatorship collapsed, thankfully, when I was 14, right. I was already very politicized and I have very vivid memories of that period. Your father was affected by oh, this yes, heavily well, as well. My yeah. whole family, yeah, like yeah, most yeah. families yeah, right, in, right, in right. places okay. like Greece that have had such a checkered history. But I remember that once we moved to a parliamentary democracy, and of course we all celebrated in the streets the fact that we moved into a parliamentary democracy, democracy, then I started noticing that there are the more subtle ways of mind control and of indoctrination, uh, whether this is marketing right. or advertising or the whole political system, which is predicated upon an oligarchic uh, relationship between bankers that fund particular television channels that push particular political lines, uh, and especially the efficiency of political indoctrination when you don't have a single channel like we did during the dictatorship right. or like they did in the Soviet Union telling the same story but when you have 25 different channels telling different varieties of the same species <laughs> of lie that is a far more effective way of ensuring that you are not a citizen. One of the most interesting things to me in the book you made a distinction between experiential value and monetary value or mm -hmm. what, what did you call it in exchange the book? Value. Exchange value. And basically talking about how capitalism has the tendency to try to turn everything it possibly can into exchange value. That's right. The whole point about capitalism was the conversion of goods into commodities. Right. And therefore, the shift away from experiential values to exchange values. And goods here means like anything humans consider anything good. Anything you enjoy. Yeah, a Whether good thing. Whether it's sunset, watching a sunset, <laughs> or, um, you know going out with friends or um, having a relationship or right. drinking a glass of wine. Right. Uh, these are all things that give us experiential value. Right. But as we're shifting, have been shifting for 300 years now into a world where most production is done in order not to experience that which is being produced, but in order to sell it for the exchange value that it can bring the producer or the owner of the production process. Right. You have a, a gentle but at the same time brutal shift in terms of values from the things that make you um, a better person, a happier person, allow you to develop, to grow as an individual. Right. Away from this towards what's in it for me. And the delicious irony here is that we are at the same time along the path of a process which, um, in the pursuit of more and more joy, happiness, utility, whatever you want to call it, right. satisfaction, sure. we become less and less satisfied, more <laughs> and more unhappy. Right. We end up with an economy which can only be described as joyless, in the pursuit of happiness. Right. So the only way of describing this is as a genuine human drama. In America, anyway, right now, we see among like sort of and what you might call educated upper middle class demographic, you know, you see there's a push towards authentic experiential happiness in the form of, you know, people are meditating, people are trying to reclaim that stuff for themselves. Although that 
A, it's being commodified, right? Mm -hmm. There are meditation mm -hmm. apps that exactly. cost money, etc. Everything is being commodified. And, and Even decommodification is being commodified. <laughs> right, right. And B, it's a class luxury. That is, you have to have a certain level of income to be able to concern yourself in America at this point in our culture with seeking personal happiness, it seems. That is to say, most people's lives are dominated by work or by a strive to get ahead or by this sort of sense that every moment should be used productively. Yeah. That's quite, uh, Margaret Thatcher put it quite uh, succinctly, as she usually did <laughs> back then in the 1970s and early 1980s, when she said uh, sleep in, is another form of inefficiency. I think that, is, that just wow. captures it beautifully, doesn't it? Wow. <laughs> so, but look, allow me to just make yeah, a, please. A, a small point here. Our audience may mistakenly think that I believe in returning to some kind of bucolic bliss, living on off the land, uh, in a simpler non-technological existence without gadgets. Without right, 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 right. No, I am, I'm, you know, I'm a gadget freak. I, I love technology. I think that the human spirit finds, uh, at least to some extent, partly its uh, deepest uh, success uh, moment when we invent stuff. And sure. so I, I, I fully We're believe in technology. Not a Luddite, yeah. The, the problem, <laughs> however, is that and I say this in the book, just to cut a very long story, as short as it is possible. We have astonishing capacities to be inventive and to be innovative and to create machines that uh, are created in our image. Right. Robots these days. The question is, are we going to move in the direction that Mary Shelley described in Dr. Frankenstein, where our own creations are going to turn up and bite us? <laughs> or if you want, in more modern terms, uh, along the lines of the movie The Matrix, right. where in the end the machines turn us into their vassals. Or are we going to move into a, towards a situation of an ancient Athenian agora where the slaves are not human, but they are robots, so we can all sit around and enjoy a very comfortable life and have philosophical discussions and write beautiful drama and go to the theater at night. Right. A, a Star Trek kind of uh, utopia or a Matrix kind of dystopia. Sure. They are both technological, equally technological. Huh? Right. The question is, is the technology going to become our slaves or are we going to be enslaved by the technology? And that will depend on the political process and whether it is democratic, whether we as a species manage to utilize our capacity to interact with one another at the human humanistic level right. and uh, effectively prevent ourselves from the kind of interhuman conflict that will let us become, in the end, the very joyless, unhappy uh, appendices to the machines. Recently, I read a book by Steven Pinker um, who is, as you probably know, a kind of optimist in terms of he does a lot of crunching of data of over the course of history in terms of measures of human happiness and well-being and economic growth worldwide, whatever, right? His perspective is that starting with the Enlightenment, we have this concept of a kind of humanism, a focus like you're talking about on let's maximize the outcomes for humans. Let's create a world in which we are all doing as well as we can. He is seeing declines in whatever measure we can think of as unhappiness on the whole, right? Violence, sickness, death, where li we live longer, you know, over the past hundred years, 150 years, increasing lifespans. 
decreases on the whole statistically in starvation, almost every dimension that you can measure that looks positive. I will be the last person that will deny Pinker or anybody else the right to be self-deluded <laughs> uh, and to, uh, to continue the fallacy of thinking that one can actually quantify equalities. Every time we measure something uh, that cannot be measured uh, like happiness, like beauty, like wisdom, effectively we trash it. Try to, you know, you, you said to me that you are in humanities. Try to measure the beauty of a Dostoevsky novel. Does it make you happy? It makes me deeply unhappy to read it. And, and at the same time, exceptionally grateful that this novel exists and I read it. And allows me to, to feel fantastic about being a human being while I want to kill myself. <laughs> yeah? How do you measure the effect of that novel upon you? Of course. The answer is you don't. This culture of measurement, it's, it's another, uh, if you want, uh, reflection of commodification. Because sure. Exchange value is all about measurement. Yeah? Sure. You know exactly how much this laptop costs. You, know, you, you can just Google it and you find out how much it right. retails for. And the things that cannot be measured, like you know how good a professor is at the university, how good the healthcare delivered by some hospital is, these can never be measured. And yet we live in a system that forces us to measure them and in the process devalues them. Because in the end, when you measure the immeasurable, and the thing that should not be measured, then people will always try to maximize the numbers that are measured at the expense of the qualities. But having said that, I'm also very glad that humanity has been through the Enlightenment. I'm an Enlightenment, I'm not a postmodernist. Uh, I believe in modernity, I believe in the Enlightenment, despite the fact that they also brought us the Gulag, mm -hmm. and they brought us nuclear weapons, and they brought us climate change. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but this view of, of the quasi-linear trend towards better things, by somebody who comes from the evolutionary biology perspective like Pinker, uh, simply it is a reminder to me of how Charles Darwin did not deserve his uh, disciples. Like most great men and women do not deserve their disciples. Right. They are better than their disciples. Uh, it's a Spencerite view, it's not a Darwinist view. Uh, Darwin was very clear that his theory was about how biological systems evolve right. through adaptation and mutation, but he never believed in the survival of the fittest, right. the Pinkerian view that everything gets better. That's rubbish for as far as Darwin. Spencer, who was Darwin's uh, great acolyte, and who was uh, the, the person that was trying to create the Darwinian movement, mm -hmm. Darwin, Darwin was not interested in creating one, was the one that coined the term the survival of the fittest, supposedly that evolution always, in the end, uh, uh, favors and selects for the fitter, the better, the, the, the more gotcha. beautiful, and so on. None of that washes with me. It is fantastic that we had the Enlightenment moment. It was the moment when we realized that through science, through uh, dispassionate thinking, through humanism, through historical research, through drama and literature and great poetry, right. we can understand our nature, our capacities, and we, we can become better. That does not mean we will become better. Because sure. let me remind you that in Auschwitz, the guards were listening to Mozart when they went home. So the, the idea of linear progress is anathema to those of us who feel that we have a duty to work politically, culturally, at all levels, in order to make sure that we're moving not towards the matrix, but towards to, the agora. 
to be perfectly fair to Pinker, he would agree with you 100% that it's not some sort of magical, mystical power of the free market or of human technology that would make things better. No, but there's a determinism in Pinker. That may very well be the case. In this recent book, he does give a certain pride of place to a conscious humanism as a guiding force for this process. That's all I want to say. In his own ethics and philosophy, there is no room for uh, this kind of humanism. There's a question from an audience, a, a listener, that, that I think is a really good one, so I want to share it with you. Sure. This is from Chris Dunlap from California. He says, what are the political, economic, and social impacts of refugees on Lesbos, Greece, and EU? There was a leftist refugee support group on Lesbos called the Village of Altogether. What are the prospects for an open society in a time of externally imposed austerity and war. And he's got a follow-up to that too, but maybe we should start oh, with some It's a brilliant of that. question. Yeah, right? I was in Lesbos three weeks ago. It is the island on which you can f- see with your own eyes the moral, political, and economic failure of the European Union. What we're doing on that island is a crime against humanity and against logic and against the idea of Europe as a civilized place. We have, at the moment, there are three so-called camps. One of them is a, a real concentration camp, the biggest one. Uh, it can hold 2,000 people. There are 7,500 souls stacked in there under awful conditions, which are designed to be awful in order to act as um, a deterrent for others coming. Simultaneously, what we've done is the following monstrous deed. After the Syrian crisis in the summer of 2015 created a huge flow of refugees uh, into Lesbos and from there to the rest of the European Union, you will remember that Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, um, to her great credit, threw the the borders open to the Syrian refugees and nearly fell (laughs) as a result of a revolt within her own Christian Democratic Party. And then she closed down the corridor. And then she went to Turkey and negotiated... Uh, a scandalous agreement with the president of Turkey, Mr. Erdogan. This, this, this agreement does this. It bribes President Erdogan with billions of euros so that he allows Europe to violate its international obligations to refugees according to international law. Right. So let me put it this way. Since 1945, all our civilized countries have uh, signed the international treaty according to which if somebody lands on your shores, whether it's the United States or Lesbos or wherever, they have the right to uh, a hearing that will ascertain whether they're genuine political refugees. Right. And if they are deemed to be political refugees, they have to be given refuge. They have to be given asylum. Hmm? Yep. That does not apply in Lesbos. Because this EU-Turkey treaty has uh, deemed that Turkey is a safe place. So if... You, uh, you, uh, I've met political, I see, political I refugees. They, they, they almost drown. They, they, they come to Lesbos. They are never allowed to argue that they are political refugees because even Turkey if they was are, an option. they will have to go back to right, Turkey. Right, right. Uh, and I know uh, I can give you many heart-wrenching stories. I won't do it now. But this is, this is a case where Mahatma Gandhi was once asked what he thought about British civilization. And the answer... The answer he gave was, it would be a great idea. <laughs> when people ask me about the European Union, 
and say it would be a fantastic idea if we had a European Union. But think about it, we don't. These people in Hawaii are now incarcerated in Lesbos do not have the right to get the ferry boat, even if they're allowed to wander around in Lesbos, to come to Athens. Right. And they, even if they come to Athens, they don't have the right to travel within the European Union, which is supposed to be borderless. So we've created internal walls for these people. We do not tell them when we're going to deport them. We'll tell them we will deport you at some point back to Turkey or to some other country, but it could be one week, two weeks, three weeks, two years, five years, which means they cannot build lives. Even the activists who are doing a fantastic job uh, training them, teaching them English, uh, Farsi, their own language, uh, right. computers and so on, they have an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 12-year-old there, and they have no idea how long they're going to be with this person because at any point in time, the police can storm in, right. chain this person up, and throw it back into Turkey, him, her, back to Turkey. So, but... And and yet, in the eyes of the world, you know, um, and you did try to, you gave, you know, credit where credit was due to Merkel for the original... For three weeks. Yeah, but... Yeah. She in the, the eyes of the world, what what is presented is a kind of, um, I mean, Europe still appears sober, reasonable, you know, like it projects that. For decades, pretty Europe, well. Europe was that. <laughs> okay. So we have accumulated a lot of political capital and moral capital, which now we are expending foolishly. Think of what we're doing in Libya today. We are paying traffickers to hold sub-Saharan migrants in concentration camps in the middle of the desert of southern Libya, under conditions where they're dying. We are paying these monsters to be doing this to human beings. That political capital of Europe that you mentioned is uh, degenerating. I think that that perfectly brings us to the follow-up question that he had, that Chris had, which is, given the decline in tourism due to refugee support, how do we ensure prosperity for the host islanders while providing haven opportunity for refugees? And this, this, this guy is, by the way, very much on the political left. So, I mean, he's not I coming understand. from an anti-immigrant. No, I can, I can yeah. tell that. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we are thinking in exactly the yeah, same yeah. way, Chris. And by the way, I have to say that the austerity and the refugee, the austerity uh, policies are very similar to the EU-Turkey Treaty. What, what mm -hmm. Europe is doing is it's extending the crisis, making it worse, pretending that it has solved it, because this is what austerity does to the Greek economy. But let me answer the question. Yeah. Uh, th th look, my, my, our policy, I, I, I'm part of a new political party, by the way, so this is our new party policy. It's really very simple. We have to m remove these, these people from Lesbos, actually those who want to leave. We have to have new housing built for them across Greece, so that all communities across Greece are solidaristic towards the refugees as well as to the people of Lesbos because you can't have a small island, smallish island with you know tens of thousands of, of refugees. Right. Uh, so we, as Greeks, we must spread the burden sure. and actually enjoy the benefits because these are wonderful people and in the end, they will, they will be our future. Europe is aging. We need migrants. Right. Uh, it's about time we realize that for a thousand years we've been populating the earth. Europeans <laughs> are, you know, going all over the world, destroying communities everywhere, uh, setting up new empires and so on. So, you know, now we're getting our comeuppance because the demographics have changed. Europe is now aging. The right. demographic flows will reverse. Let's 
learn how to make use of these demographic uh, reversals and um, give a new lease of life to an aging continent. But that requires a humanistic, anti-racist, non-racist, non-xenophobic attitude. So at the first instance, all the Greek communities must share the benefits and the burdens of having the refugees, not just right. Lesbos. And secondly, we should fight at the European level to become a European Union so that we can do this at the pan-European level. Right. But you see, you have this interesting and at the same time appalling incongruity. The countries that have no refugees are so anti-refugee. The ones who've never seen a foreigner are mm-hmm. very racist. Right, right, right. Like Hungary, for instance, they have no refugees, and they are treating this refugee crisis as if the, the, the you know the the earth is about to to implode. Right. I keep telling people that in my country, in Greece, in 1991, when the Iron Curtain collapsed, we had one million refugees that came to Greece. Right. You never heard of this back then. Man, you're too young to know, but um, I can assure you that it was not in the news that one million people came to Greece. Why? Because then we did not have an economic crisis like we do now. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know what happened to these one million people? Hmm. Nothing. They stayed there. They assimilated. Uh, they assimilated. Uh, they, some of my best students at the University of Athens were their children. Uh, and Greece became a better country as a result of them. Like America has become America as a result of refugees, migrants, and foreigners. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have a very big question, but I think maybe we'll see if it comes up in the context of the second part of the show, which is, uh, this I say for the audience's benefit, these are surprise video clips from Big Think's archives that are chosen by the team for conversation starters. So let's see the first one. So the first one, it seems that we can't get away from Steven Pinker. Um, he was he was here recently and... Uh, And so that's why he's on my mind too. This first clip is called, does everyone have the same values? Yes, but libertarianism isn't one of them. Sometimes people say that in the absence of religion, uh, there can be no moral values. And in fact, there can, for that reason, there can never be values that everyone agrees upon. We are, Uh, inherently conflictual. Uh, the uh, um, the human condition is conflict among uh, peoples because they can just never agree on on values. Well, putting the lie to that are developments like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 and the Millennium Development Goals, uh, where the nations of the world agreed on a number of uh, milestones that, that that humanity should strive for, uh, having to do with health and longevity and um, uh, education, and some of which were met uh, years early, such as reduction of extreme poverty, usually defined as more or less what a person would need to support uh, himself and his family, 
which was met several years ahead of schedule. Right now, the uh, less than 10% of the world lives in a state of extreme poverty. And the successor to the Millennium Development Goals, called the Sustainable Development Goals, calls for the elimination of extreme poverty by the 2030s. Uh, an astonishing uh, goal, one that is by, by no means um, out of reach. One, one development that people both on the left and the right are unaware of is that there's almost, a, almost an inexorable force that leads affluent societies to devote increasing amounts of their wealth to social spending, to redistribution, to uh, children, to education, to health care, to support of the poor, to support of the aged. Now, until the 20th century, most societies devoted at most 1.5% uh, of their GDP to social spending, and generally much less than that. But starting in the 30s with the New Deal in the United States and accelerating in Europe after World War II with the welfare state, now uh, the median across societies of social spending is 22% of GDP. Uh, the United States is a little bit below that, but even that's misleading because we've got a lot of welfare that's done by our, by our employers. That's how we get our health insurance. That's how we get our retirement. Other countries, it's the government that, uh, that, that mediates that. But if you add the private social spending onto the public uh, portion, the United States is actually second highest in the entire world. But this is a, a development sometimes called Wagner's Law, and it just seems that resistance is futile. Even conservative politicians like George W. Bush presided over another expansion of the welfare state for this Medicare drug benefit. And the attempts by the Trump administration to repeal Obamacare, for example, were stymied by uh, you know, almost like you know, pitchfork and, and, and uh, torch-bearing angry constituents. Uh, people like social spending, despite their protestations, uh, even in uh, libertarian America. And in fact, the, it's probably not a coincidence that the number of libertarian paradises in the world, that is, developed states with no substantial social spending is zero. Uh, and as developing countries develop, as they start to become affluent, they get on the bandwagon and they start to uh, develop programs of social spending. The, the expansion of social spending shouldn't be a shock because even if one believes in the principles of the free market, then there are just some things that the, the market is not going to provide by design. No one expects that the market will provide for, for uh, poor children. It's not something that markets can do. Uh, or the elderly or the unlucky people with nothing to offer in the marketplace in exchange for which they could make a decent living. And so as a kind of necessary patch or kludge or, as we say, safety net, uh, wealthy societies have to provide what the market by design uh, cannot. As an atheist, of course I believe that uh, not only is it possible to have moral values, but humanity can not do without them. I'm in full agreement with what uh, Pinker is saying on this. He tries to find evidence of this in the developmental uh, targets of the United Nations, in uh, various treaties, and there's a far stauncher uh, piece of evidence, greater support for the, his own hypothesis that moral values are perfectly possible and common amongst humanity, despite the diversity of uh, our own understanding of human values. Literature. The fact that you can read, even in translation, uh, a Senegalese novel and cry, 
or the Senegalese can read, um, you know, Dostoevsky and cry. Right. That is proof that we share a common humanity, which means we we share common moral values. Now, on the question about libertarianism, he's right. There is no such thing as a functioning libertarian society for a very simple reason. Libertarianism is absolutely incompatible and inconsistent with capitalism. <laughs> right. Uh, libertarians uh, have some great ideas about uh, innovation, about uh, the role of markets as uh, uh, machines that effectively emit signals that uh, uh, producers and innovators pick up and respond to, but they have no concept of capital accumulation, of exploitation, of surplus value. Uh, and therefore, they simply cannot get it that if tomorrow morning you did away with the state, capitalism, really existing capitalism, would collapse. It just has no chance of surviving without the state. This notion of libertarians that right. uh, uh, wealth is produced individually and then socialized by the state, which then redistributes it, and, that, and Pinker has that view too, that is nonsense. Uh, value is created collectively. <laughs> we all work together. Right. And then it's privatized. <laughs> and if you don't have a mechanism, a political mechanism of recycling deficits and surpluses, profits and uh, losses, um, and redistributes, then the process by which General Motors, Google, uh, Tesla, and so on are created just collapses. So then in a grand uh, sense, like what, I'm sure you get asked this by Americans all the time, but kind of what is the, what does the system look like that works better from your perspective? I mean, we're not talking about pure socialism, like that, I don't think. Are we talking about some kind of collectivist form of capitalism? What, 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 what would work? Well, people. we already know what has worked better in the past. We know that the Bretton Woods system between the 1950s and 1960s produced much, much better results than the system we live in today. Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods was the uh, globalization of the New Deal. Okay. After 1944. Uh, it was a system of fixed exchange rates across the world um, with the United States playing a surplus recy recycling role. Remember the Marshall Plan? Yes. Remember the way in which American surpluses were being used to prop up Japan and, and, and Europe, uh, also for geopolitical reasons in competition with the Soviet Union, but also because the new dealers in power understood that the global hegemon has to recycle politically uh, wealth. Otherwise, the system does not work. So this requires leadership from a superpower or a few it did. superpowers. It did at that point. Hmm. There's nothing stopping us from doing it on a, on a cooperative basis, uh, except the fact that both Europe and the United States are ungovernable as we speak. <laughs> Uh, but utterly ungovernable, okay? Uh, I mean, look at Washington, D.C., and look at Europe. Uh, Europe is a, it's a complete joke in terms of yeah. governance. Yeah. But let's look ahead. The fact that something hasn't happened doesn't mean that it can't happen. Right. Uh, in the early part of the 19th century, when the anti-slavery movement started, the standard argument against it was that there's never been a society without slaves. So what? That did not mean that we could not establish a society that was slave or right. slavery-free. My ideal world, and this is the topic of my next book, okay, uh, which is a nightmare just to even contemplate, but nevertheless, <laughs> uh, my, my ideal world would be one in which you have uh, a, a decentralized uh, economy uh, without private property, 
where, for instance, uh, the only shareholders of a, of a business are the people who are working in it, and right. where you 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 know you are a bundle of capital and labor at once. So when you are interviewed by some other company that you're thinking of going to work for, uh, you bring your capital along with you, the accumulated capital, but you only have capital in a company in which you are also contributing your lab- your labor. I see. So that combines a market system, uh, freedom. Right. If, this is, a, if you want, quite libertarian in a sense, but at the same time, it ends the private ownership of means of production where you have increasing accumulation of property rights over capital uh, in parts of the world that no, one has never, you know, Warren Buffett has never even visited. It would benefit people to to pool their labor as opposed to, say, being freelancers. As opposed but they're already to being- pooling their labor. You not know, everybody. People working, oh, yeah, they are, whether they like it or not. If you're working for a corporation, you're pooling your labor with other sure, people. Sure, sure, sure. Except that you're not receiving returns to capital. The returns to capital go to somebody that we don't even know who it is. Yeah, somebody yeah. dispersed in the financial sector somewhere who can easily turn around and sell the company to somebody, to a private equity company that comes in, strips down the company, loads it with, with huge quantities of debt, and then assets strips it. Yeah. But that's your next book, and you don't have to think about that yet. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's do the the final, the second and final video, shall sure. we? Okay, cool. Let's go. So this one is philosopher Slavoj Žižek, and the video is called "Why Be Happy When You Could Be Interesting." You know, happiness is for me a very conformist category. It doesn't enter. It doesn't enter the frame. You have a serious ideological uh, deviation at the very beginning of uh, famous proclamation of independence, you know, pursuit of happiness. If there is a point in psychoanalysis, it is that people do not really want or desire happiness. And I think it's good that it is like that. For example, Let's be serious. When you are in a creative endeavor, in that wonderful fever, my God, I'm onto something, and so on, happiness doesn't enter it. You are ready to suffer. Sometimes scientists, I read history of quantum physics or earlier of radiation, were even ready to to take into account the possibility that they will die because of some radiation and so on. You know, happiness is for me an unethical category. And also, we don't really want to get what we think that we want. The classical story that I like, the traditional male chauvinist scenario. I am married to a wife, relations with her are cold, and I have a mistress. And all the time I dream, oh my God, if my wife were to disappear, I'm not a murderer, but let us say, uh, drop me, it would open up new life for me with the mistress. You know what every psychoanalyst will tell you quite often happens? That then, for some reason, wife goes away, you lose the mistress also. You thought, this is all I want. When you have it there, you turn out that it was a much more complex situation where what you want is not really to live with the mistress, but to keep her as a distance, as an object of desire about which you dream. And this is not just an excessive situation. I claim that this is how things function. We don't really want what we think we desire. First of all, you wanted to say that you... Yes, for the the benefits of full disclosure. 
uh, Slavo is a great friend and a collaborator and comrade in the political movement that we've created together in Europe, DiEM25, the Democracy in Europe movement. Okay, so basically... So I'm not unbiased. Right, and basically what we have to say is that this is the most wonderful video we've ever seen and <laughs> full of great ideas and that's it. <laughs> no, I'm just no, kidding. No, of course I'm, not, I'm because <laughs> you know, when Slavo and I get together, we, we, we argue until the cows come home. Sometimes we even exchange blows. But yeah, <laughs> really? yeah? Not, Has not it come to blows? Not okay. Yeah, almost. Okay. No, but there is some physical violence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Friendly one. He likes, you know. yeah, he's into struggle. He's a Hegelian. It's, in, yeah, it's impossible yeah. to shut him up and, and get a word in edgeways. Uh, but look, the, the point that he's making as a genuine Hegelian is that happiness is a little bit like, uh, this is not my saying, I can't remember who said it, uh, a, a little bit like a butterfly, a beautiful butterfly. Right. If you try to pursue it, you will never get it. But if you sit there idly looking at something else and contemplating, maybe it can come and sit on your shoulder right. beautifully. And, and, and that moment is one of pure joy that can never be intended. The pursuit of happiness, he's right, even though I believe that the, the actual phrase in the American Constitution was very important and a, a very progressive one, mm. uh, juxtaposing that uh, you know the new nation's sure. uh, uh, dedication to the individual and to liberty and then to happiness against the the European tradition whereby you had to suffer in order to be considered uh, uh, you know a, a, a serious person, right? Uh, which effectively was a, a, an agenda uh, by the powerful in order to keep the powerless uh, under their thumb, but the. Allow me to speak just briefly as an economist, as an academic economist. Our young men and women who enter universities, colleges, and who have the experience of economics 101, the first thing they're told, eh, lecture one, week one, semester one, is that the rational individual is the one that maximizes happiness, maximizes utility. And you even have a mathematical depiction of happiness. It's called a utility function. Okay. And your rationality uh, is nothing other than an um, algorithm that maximizes that utility given your constraints and your resources. Every economist in the world has been trained in a manner that on the first moment of their exposure to economics, you know, 6,000 years of philosophy, Moral philosophy goes out of the window. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right? And so, so they are all trained to imagine that we are a bit like a guinea pig on a treadmill and we have to go faster. Of course, we don't move. We're not going anywhere. Right. So in the end, um, the, and he's right, Zizek, that you know, the couches of psychoanalysts and psychotherapists are full of people who hate themselves, uh, who if you talk to them about happiness, you make them even more unhappy. Sure. The constant pursuit. Uh, the ancient Greeks used to say that, for instance, money. Uh, money is great to have, but it's a disaster if you're trying to get it. <laughs> so they always wanted to have money. Sure. I, I, I actually share that. I would like to have more money than I have, <laughs> but I'm not prepared to do anything for it. <laughs> and th th I think that, that that's similar to, to happiness. But going back to, to the economist's model of man, and I should say woman, but I'm not because it's a man. Homo economicus is very male and very chauvinist because of this mechanistic nature sure. and the quantification of everything that matters into a happiness index or a utility index. 
effectively think about it, we have the most sophisticated supposedly social science, supposedly being economics, which is depicting us in a way that robs us of any possibility of rational scrutiny over our desires. Right. Because the moment you're assuming that the rational person is the one who is actually maximizing pres- maximizes the satisfaction of his desires, what you're saying is that you can never be better than a cat or a mouse. <laughs> because my cat, my cat knows mm, what it wants. Right, right. It knows what it wants. I can assure you, I don't know whether you have a cat or not. Sure, I have too. Um, yeah. yeah, they know. They like this cat food and they don't like yeah. that cat food. Right. And, they will, and they're very cunning in the way they, are, they will get it. What they don't have is a capacity to ask themselves the question, I like this particular cat food, should, should I? Sure. Or I don't like jazz music, but you know, I, sh- maybe, I should, maybe I should like it. The moment you're assuming that there is such a thing as happiness, which is also measurable, and that is all that matters, then you, you can never be happy. Because if you can never pass judgment over your desires, then you can never be a self-motivated developer of yourself. Right. And in that case, you can never enjoy the genuine happiness that comes from growing as a person. My issue here is with the word happiness and the definition of happiness. I think that like, you know, first of all, happiness and desire are not necessarily the same thing. To say that to maximize, you know, the achievement of desire is to maximize happiness. I mean, Zizek himself is saying that that's not the case. He's saying yeah, we don't we don't know what we want actually, you know. Economists assume that. Yeah. <laughs> but when he talks about the like creative success or mm-hmm. that feeling of intellectual achievement or whatever and how that may involve a lot of sweat and suffering and and whatever, right? I mean, that is happiness. That's a f- that you could very easily call that a form of happiness even with its suffering. Oh, but they, an economist would would turn, turn around and say, ah, so what you're telling me is that there are different desires that you have whose satisfaction give different um, levels of, of happiness. And the scientist that Zizek was referring to <laughs> is somebody who, just like some people prefer apples to oranges, prefers the happiness he will get out of the pursuit of a particular uh, research project on radioactivity, right. even if it kills him or her, uh, to going out and reading a book. Right. So the point I'm making is that you cannot defeat the vulgar utility maximizer, eudaimonia uh, seeker right. on the basis of empirical evidence. Because whatever you do, the neoclassical economists can always explain it as a result of a maximization of utility or happiness project. Right. But what we need to understand is that the genuine happiness, and I think that's what Slavoj was saying, genuine happiness comes when you're not looking for it. When you're doing right. something for other reasons, for the hell of it. Because it's the right thing to do, independently of happiness. Let's face it, you know, there are a lot of things that, that mm. people do and lots of sacrifice. So, of course, it's a question of interpretation. Okay, doing something because it's the right thing to do, right? Yeah. So some people are motivated, you for one, are motivated by political and moral motivations to make mm-hmm. people's lives better. That you are doing what you believe, you know, when you do your work, you're doing what you believe to be the right thing for people, mm-hmm. right? You know, a person who is, I mean, to go back to my example of the artist, right? A painter, mm-hmm. right? They are doing, I mean, what they're- They're not doing it for happiness. 
Well, they're certainly not doing it. They are doing it because they can't do otherwise. Then, they, otherwise, they are not artists. No, but I married an artist. I can tell you. But there is when something. When she does something, she, it doesn't give her any happiness at all. Mm. Or it's not, and it's not. It's certainly not the anticipation of the happiness that she will feel afterwards. That is it's the a thing. sense of you know. <laughs> this is it. I must do this. Yes, but what what is that? This is it. That this is the thing I ch- I I want to no, do more than the, I want the to thing do that other chooses things. You. Yes, but the still. That chooses you but still, artist. when they wake up in the morning, that's the thing they also choose to do, as opposed to doing something else. They're not robots, you know. There is true. There is but a, a true artist <laughs> is, uh, you know, is somebody who has the capacity to be motivated by things that are outside the realm of um, their calculation, their desires, their own even prejudices. That's why you can have fantastic artists who are horrible people, <laughs> right? Just to dig a, a little bit deeper mm-hmm. into this, you're, so you're married to an artist. She uh, she is a painter, installation a, artist, installation Sculptors artist, and right, installation. Right. Okay, and but so you're saying to me that there is not. I mean, what is passion? We talk about passion, right? Ah. So passion is not something you you want. I mean, you can be chosen and also want something, can't you? I mean, it, 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 it cannot be torture from sunup to sundown I, for her. I don't believe it. No, 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 no. It's yeah, not. Yeah. It's not. It's yeah. not. Look, the, the, these <laughs> are all, there are too many blurred lines and divisions between uh, desires, be, uh, happiness, satisfaction, passion, mm. uh, th- something that chooses you, something that you choose. Right. You mentioned the Slavoj Hegelian. The, those two are symbiotic and feed off each other. But the the main point I want to make is that what makes us human, right, and different to computers, androids, cats, and dogs, is our capacity to do things in spite of ourselves, to do things for the hell of it. And the, the, the most heroic acts have been done for the hell of it, not because somebody calculated that, you know, in the end, on balance, this passion of mine is stronger than that passion of mine. Of course, we need to calculate most of the things that we do in life. You know, when we cross the road, we have to be calculating, otherwise we'll be squashed by a truck. Right. Yeah. yeah. But the great deeds in life are done for the hell of it. That's my view. And there are innate forces in us that makes us that allow us to relate to one another. So when you see a genuine heroic act, so you know the Polish cavalry uh, charging against the invading German panzers. Right. Yeah. Now you can say that these were idiots. Uh, killing themselves, huh? or you can say that they uh, they had a passion for the country that did it, which of course demeans it. I think that the best way of looking at that heroic act is to say that you know they did it because it was the right thing, not because they wanted to die, not because they didn't care about dying, not because they were going for glory. But at that moment, you know, there comes a moment in in, in a human's life that suddenly you realize that something needs to be done, and it doesn't really matter whether you want to do it or not, and you do it. And, mm. and 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 mm. then you can be exceptionally happy if it works out afterwards, but as a byproduct, not because that is the driving force. So that's where I agree with Slavoj. The moment happiness becomes the driving force for doing something, you will never be happy. You will be on antidepressants. I think this is a perfect place to wind it up. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for being on Think Again. This was a great thank conversation. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And that wraps up this week's episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to continue the conversation, come find us on Facebook. We have a group there called Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Feel free to drop me an email at jason at bigthink.com. 
ideally saying nice things about the show or how you're listening or whatever else you'd like to share with me. And we'll be back next week with America's most wonderful dark satirist, David Sedaris. Hope to see you then.